I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Thank you for joining us. I am happy today to welcome one more guest on our little mini series uh, that coincides with the release of my book, That Little Voice in Your Head. And today I am hosting a change, a behavioral change expert. Sharo Izadi has released her first book, which I believe has one of the most interesting titles I have ever uh, uh, heard, which is the kindness method. I like that so much. I wonder why I did not copyright that somehow. Uh, the kindness method was really about using methods that we use to deal with addiction to actually change habits and micro habits. And in a very interesting way, basically it's, it is about treating ourselves with kindness so that we can actually perform better and feel happier in life. An amazing, amazing piece of work, which she then took to a practice where she teaches and speaks about the kindness method to all walks of life. Her second book was called The Lost Diet. I am so interested in that. Basically, once again, using the kindness method to lose weight and keep the weight off. Sharu herself lost 60 kilograms. And I will absolutely tell you sitting in front of her, I am stunned. Like, it's amazing. You would never have guessed that she was ever in a day any less fit than she is today. So I'm going to ask about that. But what I want to uh, cover today is mainly that idea of all of those habits that shape us, that we uh, get into perhaps unknowingly, perhaps not really understanding the reasons why, and then how we go from those uh, habits into building a person that is perhaps not us, is a person that's made by addiction, really, because addiction goes much further than substance abuse. So I'm expecting an amazing conversation, and I hope you will enjoy it too. Sharo, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I will start with that 60 kilogram thing. Like, oh my God. Do you know what? I was doing the maths in my head and I was trying to think, did I exaggerate? But no, I think that's, that's about right. Yeah. Um, there is less than 60 left. So <laughs> no, and actually no, but this is half of you now. Something about that. Yeah. So around something that I'm always keen to sort of reiterate that I'd lost that much weight before. It's just that did previously, you? yeah, on and off my entire life, mm. I had lost enormous amount of weight and gained weight. I had, at one point, I had a gastric band surgery that I had to have removed by emergency and, you know, didn't tell people about it. I was so ashamed. And I have been trying to change the way I, like, sort of fix myself until I found the tools that we're going to talk about for pretty much as long as long as I can remember. So it, the weight loss wasn't the um, the game changer. It was addressing binge eating disorder that I didn't know mm. I had which on me manifested itself as weight. Mm. And it was unwanted weight only because I associated, I learned from a young age that eating that way and being overweight at all, I guess meant that I wasn't 
taking care of myself in lots of other ways that I wasn't I worthy of taking care yeah. of myself in other ways, let mm. alone capable of doing difficult things like creating new habits. So my focus was always on like white knuckling it, punishing myself, treating myself like I was weak and I deserve to be deprived. And of course that doesn't work, <laughs> not for long anyway, and not in a sustained way. It wasn't until that shift took place where I thought, if weight loss becomes a byproduct of me being nicer to myself in every possible way and taking the advice I'd give another person, great. If it doesn't, I'm still going to do that other stuff and be good to myself. It can't be conditional on how I look. And then, of course, when I started behaving towards myself as I intended to, when I had reached this pinnacle of whatever physical perfection that I thought I needed to reach, when I stopped focusing on that and focused on treating myself well every day, on my body, a lot of weight fell off. There will be other people for whom that isn't the case, but it's just as important for them because it's all consuming, thinking about food all day, the guilt, the shame, et cetera. And then that, if, if what you do when you have a lot of guilt and shame is overeat, then of course the cycle is wildly un yeah. unhelpful. It's, it's, it's a vicious cycle in every possible way. I, I think I love the way you frame it because the most important thing to understand is that of course, everybody is beautiful. Like every physical body is beautiful and the weight is not really an issue. The issue is if that weight is the result of you mistreating yourself, then fixing the issue of mistreating yourself can lead you to lose weight or not, but it is that the real issue, this is the symptom is the weight or the symptom is procrastination or the symptom could be getting angry every now and then. But that behavior is not the, the thing you're trying to fix. You're trying to fix the underlying reason for that. Can, Absolutely. The behavior is the solution, not the problem. I believe so. Uh, me but too. Why, why, why do we, why do we do that? Why do we why do we mistreat ourselves so much? I mean, I'm guilty. I talked to you today after what now adds to exactly 31 days of grueling work. Like this is slow-mo, it's the slow podcast. And you know, it's my joyful moment of having a wonderful conversation with a wise person. But I have, because of the publication of my book, had been interviewed on podcasts, on news media. I've been working on recording the audio book. I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been. And honestly, I haven't been kind to me. Okay. As much as I could, I tried, but kindness to me was my second priority. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, making the book succeed, making more people know about it, putting the content out there in the open so, so that people can benefit from it has been my priority. What's going wrong in my head? Well, it depends on your definition of kindness and whether that changes. My definition of kindness, I think all of us need to internalize our own definition, our own sort of criteria that we go through. For me, the definition, if I'm trying to work out whether I'm being kind to myself, I tend to ask myself three questions. What will I be glad I did tomorrow? What would I tell the person I love most to do if they were faced with the choices that I am now? And if the smartest person I know was watching me, what would I want them to see me doing? Interesting. What choice would I want them? Because I think a lot of us pride ourselves on making smart choices. And when we're alone, we don't worry as much sometimes, I think. Or certainly in my case. And being, I have noticed now that I have a coaching practice and I speak to a lot of people about why they are unkind to themselves, that some of it gets wrapped up in the stuff we already know about, you know, the brain not being there to make us happy, but keep us safe. And the fact that we need to focus on our deficits and our threats and all the stuff we know when we're looking at anxiety and things like that. But I've definitely seen a 
pattern in this idea of I can take it. I don't want my loved ones to take it, but I can take it. And everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people seem to think that they're the exception when it comes to that. And I'm one of the greatest gifts I've been given personally is to now have so many conversations, thousands of hours of conversations where I realize I can't be the worst. <laughs> Statistically speaking, I can't be the exception. And that's a gift that I'm so glad to give other people and say, you're not the only one who's harder on yourself. You're not the only one who has a different definition of self-kindness for yourself than you do for someone else. It doesn't have, even have to be someone you love. Sometimes we're nicer to strangers than to ourselves. Often we are. Or more gentle, rather. But what's the reason still? I imagine all of us have a number of different reasons for it. I think that focus on negatives and what's wrong with us and absorbing criticism a lot of the time comes down to it. I think the soundtrack that we have playing a lot of the time, forgetting the fact that we have been given a lot of core beliefs about who we are and how capable we are, and we are more prone to absorb the negative stuff, as you know and to reinforce that in our behaviors towards ourselves. And if we feel undeserving and we feel that we're not worthy or capable, and we've been told that from a young age and not given the tools to reprogram that or to debate with it or shift or fact check, as I often say, why wouldn't we continue to think those negative things about ourselves? Nothing's disrupted it. Unless we're taught early on to focus on the positives and reinforce them and have that way of looking out into the world. Have we ever seen anyone that was taught that from a young age? I think more and more kids are now because, you know, their parents are aware of how much that means to a lot of kids. Self-esteem and stuff, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Self-compassion, self-esteem. It's interesting. I, f I find that we are probably renaming the same things, but the underlying causes are still the same, right? I mean, in, a, in an interesting way, every child, just by the virtue of going through school, is being told to excel somehow, that what they need to do is to be a little better than what they did last time. And in an interesting way, do they really? I mean, the, 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 did my wonderful daughter A, I need to, to score in geography, for example. She didn't like geography and I don't like geography, to be honest. So to whose benefit that is? That's an interesting example because I always say I don't profess to have ever been particularly academic. And I think that one of the things that surprises me now, for example, if you're applying for university, you're given all this support, you know, this is how you promote yourself. This is how you structure this. Here's some time to do that. At no point were we taught to deal with rejection, <laughs> even though that was invariably going to be part of that whole journey. Yeah. Promised myself I wouldn't say the word journey if I started working in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> it is a journey. But <laughs> yeah. we knew rejection was going to be part of it. We knew that we were at an age where kids are still looking to the world to find out who they are. And yet we don't, we don't prepare them for that. And yeah, the frameworks that we measure success on and are all, in my opinion, all wrong. Like for example, I think we should have a personal development CV. What does that mean? Well, you know, you have a CV and you say, okay, I used to be not very good at managing people. And then I went on this training and I managed a few people and I made some mistakes and I have a mentor and now I can say <laughs> I'm a good manager. And so I can command more of a salary. How about if you do that for your self-esteem? How about if you do that for anxiety? How about if you're not so codependent anymore? A lot of us keep running on the same program and telling ourselves the same old things because we don't have a check-in. We don't have some sort of way to punctuate our personal development. I think that should start at school. You know, I think we should be assessed on a whole range of different things. So then you can look at the progress of a child based on all the components that are working against them too. 
But I guess that's for a different Cra- Crazy as this sounds, I, I think we should not be assessed at all. I really think that we are assessed as a result of the industrial revolution where we are all supposed to fit in a mold that basically behaves in a certain way and that fits perfectly in the machine. And so if you fit into that mold, you you know, we measure you against the mold and the more fit you are for it, the better you are. That's actually almost deluded, right? It's almost devious if you ask me. And I I told that story to a friend yesterday. It meant that the only way for me to pass math, math exams when I was younger was to fit within the lousy way they taught us to do long division and whatever that is when my brain worked very differently and it slowed me down. When I would go into exams, first three years of engineering university, we were not allowed to use a scientific calculator. And I had this friend of mine, uh, his name was Abu Noor, and I finished like an hour in, he finishes 40 minutes in, damn him, like what is wrong with you, man? And one day I literally finished my exam quickly to try and catch him and go and tell him, how would you do this? How do you finish faster than me? I'm supposed to be like a serious math geek. And, and he says, how do you do math? And he starts to tell me, you don't do this this way, you do it that way, you don't do this this way, you don't do it, you do it that way. And it all made amazing sense to me. Like you don't, nobody who knows math uses long division the way they teach us in school. It's honestly stupid. Now, because we were assessed, we were forced to fit. And even though nobody really fits, you're either less than the mold or more than the mold. And that's okay, by the way. And you end up in a place where you're just forced to be the size of the mold. And it's just bad for everyone other than the very few that were actually made like the mold. You know, it's it's a weird way of looking at it. And, and I think society is penalizing us by doing this. I think so too. And you know, that, that really resonates with me because the sort of career that I have where I keep moving into different industries to try this framework in different ways. <laughs> it's extraordinary how often I take for granted that there is a formula. There's a way of doing things. And my own insecurity about being in this new area will mean that I just will listen to something someone says. Like, this is the way that this is done. This is the way you create a startup. This is the way you write a book. This is the way you get fit. This is the way whatever. Yeah. And I think that has contributed. Those structures have contributed. I didn't think about it until you just said it now, by the way, to us just taking for granted that there's a way of doing everything until someone comes along and disrupts it or whatever. You yeah, know? and then this that becomes creative, the new way of doing yeah. it. Yeah. As opposed to saying, okay, I have a, you know, as a jumping off point, how would I do this if there was no existing way of doing this? Mm. Of course, it's harder to kind of unpack that and know how much, you know, we're not all going to be able to discover extraordinary things from scratch, but it's worth a thought. Yeah. I agree, actually. I, I want to go back to, because I think we didn't cover it enough, the idea of how would I want someone I love to do? I mean, the other points you made, I was like, yeah, I'd probably push them a little. But then you said, how would you want, would you want a loved one to do what you're doing to yourself? And I have to admit, I don't. That's the one that got me, right? You know, I wouldn't want my wonderful daughter to live the, the very, very, fast-paced, committed life that I lived. I mean, I was extremely successful, but I have to say, could I have been successful with less, maybe less work? Could I have been, especially in my, in my career years, could I have taken more care of myself? Mm. Probably. Now, this is really eye-opening. Now, thank you for disrupting my thinking. What do I do about it? Closing that gap between the way that you treat the people you love and the way that you treat yourself, 
can actually be something that's on your radar throughout the day. Rather than seeing it as this like seismic shift you have to be part of, you can just say, okay, from the moment I wake up, I'm going to treat myself the way I would treat a guest in my home. And you find yourself all of a sudden thinking, oh, I put ice in my water. Or I'm going to treat my body the way that I want to treat, that I want my child to treat theirs today. And all of a sudden you notice, oh, I just took the stairs. Or I forgave that person. I didn't let that person who bumped into me ruin my day. You know, and it's about closing that gap and and noticing that it's not that difficult to do so. And also noticing that very often we give better advice to the people we love. We give common sense advice to the people we love. And you know, if you come back to that definition of kindness, if somebody came to you, a person who you love and said, I'm really struggling with this plan of change. I wanna create these new habits and this new routine and I've fallen off track and I don't believe in myself. And your task was to get them back on track. Just generally, what sort of things would you say to them? Uh, you can do it. You know, you you basically, uh, we all fall off track. Look at the good parts that you did about it. You've made progress. What did you, you know, it's not all undone. You can probably make a couple of more steps. You know, I'm going to be there next to you and they hold your hand. Yeah. So I know where you're going with this. You do, you're, but you're no way. You're framing me. You're framing Even me. if you didn't love that person, let's say I gave you a hundred grand and you needed to motivate that person, you'd say the same thing. You wouldn't say, oh, just like your teacher said when you were 10, you're the kind of person who starts things and doesn't finish them, you're a useless waste of space. You should start on Monday because things can only begin on Monday. See, it's not even common sense. So when it's the people we love, kindness gets defined as not telling them to throw in the towel. It's reminding them of their capacity to do something difficult and your belief in their capacity to get what means most to them long-term and their worthiness to do so. That's what that's based on. And you know, the first 500 times I did that exercise, because one exercise, which is really nice if you want to do this in the spirit of passing things on, just write down the things you would say to someone you love, put their name at the top. And when you're done, cross their name out and put your own name there. <laughs> that's tricky. Yeah. That's devious. And then just notice, just honestly, just tell yourself for one week, I'm going to treat myself the way I would treat the person. I love most. And if I hear myself saying something unkind, I'm not going to, you know, this whole replacing it, it kind of bothers me a little bit because I think it does a disservice to how difficult so many people find that. But I do think there's a debate to be had. There's an update. Is this even true? You know, that's something because I've changed so much and I've done so much to help myself now. And I've changed also in the way that the world perceives me over and over and over again, physically and in all sorts of other ways. What I would do if I were you is to start thinking on a day-to-day -day basis, how would I treat my body if I was living in the body of the person I love most? How would I speak to them? What instructions would I take? And if you start noticing that there's a difference, just debate with it. Like, why don't I deserve to hear that? Or if you start noticing yourself saying things to yourself that you wouldn't dream of saying to someone else, they haven't come from nowhere. Have a think. Who uses this vocabulary? Where did this come from? When did this become my default program? And can it be a jumping off point for me to debate with elements of my program that I no longer agree with or don't suit the landscape of my life or don't mean that help me to create behaviors that align with my values, whatever it might be? Where did this come from? Whose was it? And do they deserve to be informing my decisions at this stage of my life? Interesting. If it sounds like your mom. Exactly. Question if you want to continue to be treated the way that your mom treated you. 
not even treated, but see the world that way. I don't think it needs to be a judgment thing. Not that you're saying that, but you know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't need to be like I'm repairing a damage. It just needs to be an acknowledgement that I'm constantly absorbing truths about myself. And I get to have some say in that, you know, if three people give me an opinion on me, then I have four opinions. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. You know? That never occurred to me. That is so new to me as a concept. It's a jumping off point. And the more work you do on yourself, the more you can see whether something resonates or not. You can be like, that doesn't sound like me. Or that's spot on. It sounds like you've really caught me out there, you know? So interesting. When we develop habits, I mean, you're, you're comparing this to addiction, right? Or addiction treatment, if you want. So mm -hmm. we become addicted to treating ourselves like we were treated, let's say, or, you know, like we were conditioned or like how society is expecting us to treat ourselves. Or what are the parallels between that and addiction? How is that similar to addiction? What do you mean? Sorry, I don't understand that. We get, we grow accustomed to the way that society treats us. Yeah, whatever habit it is that we develop. Like, okay. I assume that my habit is when I come back from work, I will open a bag of chips and binge watch Netflix. Okay. Okay. Where does that come from? Like, why does the, do those things become addictive? You try them once, you try them twice, and then they become like literally part of your everyday. I mean, aside from the stuff we know about dopamine hits and things like that, very often it's about looking, look at the crisps, for example, right? Rather than looking at the crisps and focusing on what's wrong with the crisps, they're not good for you, they're not healthy, I should have had something else, etc. What's right about them? What do they do for you that you otherwise don't have? How do they make I'm, I'm you feel? Not, I'm not a big crisps kind of guy. Okay, what's your thing? Actually, you're the only people in the world that calls them crisps, but you know, I'm, I'm a coffee kind because of guy. Because we make them so well. <laughs> so, yeah. no, but really, it's about turning it on its head and saying, what purpose does this serve for me? If you mm. want the answer, so often when we want the answers as to why we've developed habits that are problems that we should know better, you know, they're not good for us. We focus on what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the habit. And we hope that desperation and knowledge and good advice will be enough. What we need to focus on is what is right with the habit. How is it serving you? What is right with you? What resources do you have at your disposal to create habit change? Because aside from anything else, doing something in a row until it's easy, whether it's driving or not eating crisps is hard. Mm -hmm. And understanding why you're finding it difficult helps you to have that conversation with yourself, kind of like you would with a kid, right? So let's say you have a kid and the kid is five years old and every day you're used to giving this kid a treat. And then you, one day you read an article and you find out that this treat is like, I don't know, made of poison. So from tomorrow, you're not going to give the kid, the, I'm not a mother, no one needs to worry about my, <laughs> these <laughs> examples. Skins, yeah, yeah, exactly. So the next day, you know that the kid's not going to get its treat. Mm. You're going to disrupt its routine. What do you expect the kids to do? Rebel. Right. Kick me. Would you be angry at it for doing that? I've been kicked before, no. <laughs> <laughs> but would you be angry at the kid? No. You would understand, right? Of course mm. you find it difficult. Mm. Of course you're finding this difficult because I've taken away something that matters to you. But what do you know will happen if you consistently just listen to the tantrums every day, but don't do what the kid wants you to do? Eventually the kid will forget, right? And mm. it'll just be the new status quo. Mm. If we can have that conversation with ourselves where we're simultaneously firm but compassionate, it's not your fault. This was always going to be hard. That doesn't mean I'm going to do what you want right now because I can see further ahead what's, you know, sort of what's best for you. So if we can have that conversation with our bodies and self-soothe through self-talk that way, 
then that difficulty people have around what is the definition of kindness gets kind of reconciled nicely. Because it doesn't just have to be doing whatever the hell you like. It's taking the difficult step in the direction long term. And the way to bring that compassion about is to understand why you're doing something with non-judgmental view on it. Of course, I'm finding this difficult because crisps helped me to get through a breakup or I associate crisps with some of the best days of my life or I've been eating crisps every night for the last 10 years. So of course, I'm finding it difficult. Crisps have been my friend when I've come home or whatever else. That doesn't mean I can't change it. It just means that I'm acknowledging why I'm finding it difficult and I'm not going to have that conversation with myself, is, which is, I know how to do this. It's an objectively simple thing to do. I'm so stupid and weak because I'm finding it difficult. What do you do when you're stupid and weak? A lot of people, crisps. <laughs> <laughs> so it helps you understanding what the value of the habit to you or sometimes the value, why it began in the first place, is to be able to give yourself compassion for finding it difficult to change. And therefore, give yourself impulse control because the conversation you're having with yourself when you're triggered is calm and compassionate, but firm. That's why. Otherwise, the conversation is, why am I, so, why am I finding this so hard? It's all white knuckly and tense. When we say kind and compassionate, and I think your point about the definition of kindness is really quite interesting because yeah, kindness might be, you know, I'm not going to get up and go to work today because my, my body is not as a little lazy, right? You're saying, no, that's actually not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is to say, getting to work and being productive and really enjoying work if I can is a better outcome for me in general. I can be kind to myself by making sure that I can do this without being harsh to me, right? Now, how do you draw the line between being spoiling to yourself and being kind to yourself? I think that's a really good point. And I think that everyone has to draw their own one. What I find is looking at your life more holistically. So looking at it like a whole pie and deciding what you value most in it and having the behaviors that are difficult that you want to engage in be ones that ideally move you in the direction of realizing those values. So it may not be kind to you to miss the gym one day, but it might be kind to me because that evening I went and did something that filled me up more. You know what I mean? And that happens to matter more to me. It's about identifying what matters most to you and directing your behavior in that, in that direction. And if you find yourself not wanting to do that because you've met the inevitable difficulty that comes with disrupting the status quo, then that's your unkind decision. But it wouldn't be mine necessarily. And in, in that case, what matters then is that, is that level of awareness of really, really digging deep inside and saying, look, these are the things that matter to me more than those things. And I, I think very few of us actually sit down to find those things, right? I think often, as you well know, something bad has to happen a lot of the time oh. before people do. I know it's really sad to say, but like, you know, I've worked with young addicts. I know I, there's it's not a coincidence I know this stuff. It's not because I was academic. It's because I had to go looking for it. So it's sad. I think it's sad that so many people have to come about that self-awareness and self-compassion, those tools that we use now have to come about as a result of need, as opposed to being a default way of living. Mm. So you have to hit something that really hurts more than the... You don't have to. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. sad that that's the, that's the pattern that I've noticed. Mm. Mm. But the self-awareness comes in various ways. I mean, I think the first bit, again, with the compassion bit, is, is to say that all this personal development stuff is not about finding yourself. It's about meeting yourself and being okay with who you meet. 
So for example, back in the day when I used to go on absurd diets and try to punish myself by, with deprivation or whatever, always on a Sunday night, I would plan like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to do an army boot camp and I'm going to live on some juice for three days or whatever else, right? Obviously it didn't work because I'm a human woman who wants to eat food. But I would always say I was going to wake up at like 5 a.m. Since the day I was born, I don't want to wake up at 5 a.m. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to be useful to anyone. <laughs> Maybe a little, uh, uh, or, you know, annoying for some people. Oh, there's a reason I live alone. It's more of a gift that I give to my loved ones. <laughs> like, why on earth would I do that to myself? And it's because I was making plans for who I aspired to be, not who I actually was. So if you start liking yourself as you are, even if you don't make any changes, all of a sudden you can actually create the... What do you call it? You can create the best possible launch pad for change because you give yourself the permission to be whoever you want and create plans around that. You know, obviously take that with a pinch of salt. Don't go around doing horrible things to people and creating your life around that. But you know what I mean? Like we all, that liking yourself enough to say, I'm going to do this my way, I think lends itself to doing the little experiments that help you to know yourself better. and go, actually, that didn't feel good for me. This shift of that didn't feel as opposed to this is how I think. I mean, I'm 37 now, and I don't mind telling you, it took me a good 30 years. Six years. 36 and a half years, yeah, exactly. To realize that I was allowed to just say, this doesn't feel good, I wonder why, right? And so many people find that to be this like, I found it to be a profound shift. Mm. To say like, actually, this doesn't feel right. I haven't decided if it's my fault or your fault or my past or my now. Let's or just acknowledge that. That just doesn't feel right. Mm. Never occurred to me that I was allowed to do that or that that was even something I could do. And then I could communicate it to other people and then have relationships that based on that, I mean, that was, that's blew a, my mind. That's a biggie, honestly. I mean, right? in my, in, I always tell the story of being raised like a Middle Eastern man, you know, and Middle Eastern men are like manly. I'm right? familiar with that work, I yeah. I can imagine, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it takes a very <laughs> long time to go like, but I don't feel that I want to be that way. It's clearly not my character. It's, you know, between my conditioning as a, as a child, as, as well as my conditioning as a business executive, put in the fast lane, told that you have to fire some people every now and then. And it's like that entire story, I'm like a, a mushy, lovely, lo loving, kind, little piece of thing. And I don't want to be that, right? And it took me such a long time to actually sit back with this. I mean, one of my my top chapters in that little voice in your head is all about that awareness. I, I built the whole book on a model that I call be, learn, do. Be before you learn and learn before you do. And being that whole idea of, can I sit with me And whatever it is that I am, can I just become aware of this? Like, can I, can I tell myself, hey, I do not like green beans. My mom loves green beans. She convinced me my whole life that they're wonderful. I just don't like them, right? And it's okay to not <laughs> like them, right? I know. And those are very interestingly difficult conversations because they're elusive. Yeah. You don't really know who you are as compared to who you're told to be. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I feel the same way about baby showers. Baby showers. Tell me about baby showers. You don't want to go. No, I'm kidding. But you know, you I, I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm, I, I want to go after. I don't, I'm an introvert. Honestly, on, another thing, like I'm the ultimate introvert. I meet a thousand people a day. And throughout my career, I'm in conferences and in sales conversations. 
I want to be alone. Like people leave me alone. Like seriously, why do you have to talk so much? Right. And when you, when you actually face that, it was Susan Cain, I think the book called Quiet, where she basically said, it's okay to be an introvert. I was like, really? Okay. I'll be an introvert. Like I'll tell myself at least that I can be that introvert. It's impossible to find those things. It's all, it's also okay to be a bit of both. It's also okay for those ratios to change. It's also okay for you to communicate to other people that those ratios have changed or not. You know, like all these shades of okay that we just don't let ourselves be. And yeah, for example, I also, people would assume based on my personality that I always want to be around people. I love being alone. Yeah. I love it so much. It's like people leave. Like, I'm, Go. I'm, no, no, don't leave. I mean, yeah. stay, stay on the no, conversation. <laughs> Can so, you imagine? So, just... yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're leaving. No, but here's the question. So... Why was it not okay to be 60 kilos more? Why is it not okay for someone to simply come back from work and binge watch Netflix for six hours? I don't believe that I would have been objectively overweight if someone hadn't told me early on that being a little bit overweight was bad because I went on diets and deprived myself and then binged and reinforced this idea of, I don't know when the last, the next time I'm gonna get my hands on this thing is. Meanwhile, that thing was becoming my best friend and sort of secret affair confidant. And I don't think that things would have got to that point if I hadn't been told one day that there was something wrong with me. And it wasn't by just one person. We know women have that pressure oh, yeah. on them. This is a reality. I, as a person who looks out of, has looked out of the eyes of a person in many different bodysuits can tell you that the world will treat you differently. And I honestly think that diets are, we don't talk enough about how diets bring about binge eating disorder and the contribution that binge eating disorder makes to people's difficulty to lose weight if that's what they want to do. But still, so why is it bad? Why wouldn't you at 60 kilograms plus, why wouldn't you tell yourself, okay, I like me now and I'm going to stay there? Why wouldn't you? I was overweight because I was neglecting and abusing myself. If I was exercising and eating healthy food and caring for myself, or even if I wasn't doing those things, but I cared for myself and I liked myself and in everything else I did, I treated myself accordingly, then I don't see the weight as an issue. It was for me because it was the visible byproduct of me being horrible to myself. Like I wouldn't even drink water. You know what I mean? Because I was told at some age, People who look like this, they're not worthy of you know, being taken care of until they look like this, you know? And we get taught that as girls, especially from a young age, and they're not taught it. You just, it's, I, I wish it was taught so you could unlearn it more obviously. It just finds its way into, your, into you. This belief, when I'm slimmer or when I look different or where I'm, when I'm successful, when I'm whatever else, then I will reward myself with kindness. Aside from the fact that we deserve to be kind to ourselves now, it's actually a much more efficient way of getting things done, as we said earlier. Mm. And so even on your path away from somewhere you think you should be away from, you still don't push yourself too hard. So other than the opposite of what all of those business coaches and all of the Tony Robbins in the world. So basically you're saying, hey, seriously, you don't really have to wake up at 5 a.m. You can find an easier path to having an amazing life and you can wake up later. Or you can do what I've done, which is let yourself do it your way, build your self-efficacy by pleasantly surprising yourself with your capacity to create new habits, and then let the fifth or sixth or 50th mission you have be wake up at 5 a.m. And by this point, you already believe in yourself and you have evidence of having done difficult things recently. 
Mm. You know, so that's so, one so, option also. So take small wins first. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But the tough love thing is just not my vibe. It makes me rebel. <laughs> and But you know what? It works for a lot of people. This is what I always say. Whenever people try to like poo-poo personal development or, you know, where are you on the woo-woo scale and whatever, I just kind of think if it works, whatever. Some people want to hear this. Some people want to hear that. Some people like my kindness thing. A lot of people who like what I do can really relate to the way that I see things. And the way that I, and the experience that I've had. So it's not, a, it's not a coincidence. A lot of us are saying the same sort of things in different ways. I don't want to do a disservice to what any of us have done, but ultimately, you know, we are. And the way that we deliver it. And for me, whenever I got told there were like rules and I could get something wrong again and someone was watching me and I had to have like a buddy to keep an eye on me and like that stuff just made me want to be naughty. It just makes me want to be naughty and demonstrate that I don't have to do what someone's. It creates this rebel with no cause thing. And that compassion piece for me was really important because my bounce back time now when I deviate from a plan or I do something, whether at work or in a personal ambition or whatever else, if I fall off track, I get back. Re- I, I mean, I forgive myself really quickly now. So I waste a lot less time too. I love that idea of forgiving ourselves really quickly. So the idea again, interestingly is that most people will give up when they make a mistake or two. So if you tell yourself, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to become a little more fit. And then three weeks later or a week later, you you miss one or two sessions. You start to tell yourself, okay, you know what? I'm not good for this. I'm not going to do it again. But the idea is, Hey, I'm human. I, I've had years of conditioning to behave in a certain way. I might as well you know, celebrate the fact that I went four times, not punish myself for the fact that I didn't go for a couple of times. Exactly. And if the other habits that tend tend to knock on from you feeling proud of yourself tend to be healthier than the practical domino effect that you feeling like I've blown it does. I've blown it. Doesn't matter. I might as well not give a worry about that. So I swear a lot. I've managed not to swear yet. I may as well not care about this. Let's let's make sure we we swear before you leave. Yeah, exactly. Um, Even if you pretended you went to the gym and that you were proud of yourself, I think the knock-on effect that that would have on your next habit and your next habit and your next habit by virtue of the fact that you're living this reality where you're proud of yourself will probably benefit you more than if you're like, oh, I blew it and never keep anything up anyway, so that doesn't really matter either. And that's what I'm like anyway. I can be very all or nothing. And that's why working in addiction really was fascinating to me because that all or nothing mentality was something that people found it very difficult. People do find it very difficult to, um, moderation is something that people find very, very difficult. And I worked in addiction treatment, which clinically originally when I was working in the NHS was always around abstinence, frankly, because the waiting lists are so long. And for the most part, the people we were working with at that stage, they didn't see alcohol as being a positive or opiates, whatever, being a positive part of their lives ever again. So abstinence was the only option. I was trying to apply the same approaches and modalities to my eating. But of course, abstinence is not an option with food. So I had to learn my own version of recovery while still engaging with my problematic substance. And that's how I learned moderation. And so that's how I teach other people moderation. Moderation is an interesting... uh... Yeah, even as I say it, do you know, I have to tell you something. So many years people told me, just be moderate, as if they didn't understand that I had this like extraordinarily strong addiction to this behavior. The word moderate used to really annoy me, even as I heard it come out of my mouth now. Things like, just be moderate, or I don't know, there was a bunch of stuff I hated, like, keep up the good work. (laughs) That always made me want to ruin it. 
to set something on fire. <laughs> the rebel. I don't know the why. The rebel. I don't know why. So, so is, is being rebellious a good thing or a bad thing in your view? In my view, I don't know. I don't know if this is useful to other people, but in my case, it's recently become more helpful because I've worked a lot on feeling fearful of getting things wrong or people being upset with me. So now I'm seeing it as a sort of like, I can take risks and actually I can deal with the fallout as opposed to insulate myself from the chance taking. Could I trust myself to deal with the worst case scenario? So for me, the rebellion has come back a little bit. But when my first book came out, it wouldn't have done because I was just, just terrified. So there was no rebellion. Everything was just like, just do everything the way that people tell you to do it. And don't ask any questions. You're just lucky to have this and you're lucky to have that. And now, you know, that bit of me is coming back a little bit. I say openly, actually, that if you live in a world where so much is wrong, or at least so much is not fit for you, rebellion is a very, very good character. I think the idea, I don't come across as a, like a, an angry rebel who's carrying a flag and, you know, waving things, but definitely within, within my approach to everything, I attempt to say, no, I rebel. I don't accept what I'm being told. I don't accept what I'm being taught. I don't accept the way I'm asked to live. I believe deep inside me that there is a lot in our society that could be wrong or right, it doesn't matter, but that it is not fit for me. And I think everyone should have the right to say, and I rebel. If it's not fit for me, then it's not fit for me. And I'm going to change that. I'm going to find alternatives. And I think that the reality is that when you talk to the biggest of all rebels, I find that fascinating. They're very similar to other rebels. You might be rebelling against your current environment, and then you just run away and do something very different. And then you find a little group there that are doing exactly what you're doing. Doesn't seem to be very rebellious if so many others are hmm. doing it. It's just very, very different than what you were told, told to do originally. I, I find it an extremely valuable character in today's world. That's so interesting. Yeah. What patterns do you notice between rebels? <laughs> A rebellious person? either from their experience or the way that they behave or what they're good at? I think there are two types of rebels that I have observed and worked with very frequently from all the way. I mean, I was a very, very close observer to the Arab Spring, for example, not just from the screens of the TV, but because of my the nature of my role at the time, heading emerging markets for Google and having had the opportunity to work with a lot of the Egyptian government as a young man when I worked at IBM and so on, and my contacts and my friends and so on. I was part of I had no view. I have never gave myself the right because I lived outside Egypt for a long time to have a position on Egyptian politics. But at the same time, I was very engaged. And I'll tell you, there are always, always two types of rebels. There's the one that is motivated by anger. And there is the one that is motivated by compassion. And it's quite interesting because all that you talk about is very similar to this. The ones that are motivated by anger or other negative emotions, if you want, mm -hmm. are destructive. They're trying to break the old systems. They're trying to, I get lots of messages from people around Russia and Ukraine, for example, where they basically say, I wanna kill the Russian soldier that did that, okay? The event is, yeah, it can make everyone angry, but that negative emotion leads to more destruction. What you're talking about actually is a very interesting rebel, one that wants to change things, but from a positive place of compassion, like, okay, here's our status quo, here's our new base. 
and we're going to try to change from here. And normally when you're motivated by compassion, kindness, other positive emotions, your same rebellion is leading you to build rather than destroy. It's very, very interesting. And I think most of what you're talking about is really about that. It's like, okay, I've accepted where I am with my current body. I'm positive about it. I'm happy with what, where I am. I'm removing the parts that are not serving me, such as the way I treat myself or the way I've been treated before. And from this base, I'll take off. And there are many examples. You know, you take the Dalai Lama and how he responds to his country being taken away. And he's a rebel. He's really a rebel because he completely redefines the idea of how you deal with your enemy. Gandhi does the same and so on and so forth. And they are rebels in many, many ways, but they are rebels that are not about destruction. They're a rebel about changing the status quo, but changing it positively. That's very, very interesting. That's very interesting indeed. And you know, I think the idea of restoring is also interesting when it comes to this sort of thing. Because I see it now as rebellious to be unlearning, to be showing people that this shouldn't have happened in the first place. You shouldn't have learned it this way in the first place. It wasn't your fault. I absolutely, absolutely sign up for that. I mean, my entire work is based on the concept that we were born in a perfect format. We were born happy. We were born feeling safe. We were born connected. We wanted to connect to other humans. We didn't have any issues with our crumbly bodies. And, you know, it was, it was all okay. And then you grow out of this and learn and learn and learn. And all that you learn just honestly makes more money for capitalism and makes less happiness for you. And I think the idea of unlearning, I talk about that quite extensively in that little voice in your head. It's, it's the idea that what you, the code that you wrote in your brain is just getting you to the point where your hardware is fantastic. Your machine is very capable, but you just write the wrong code on it and you end up in the wrong places. So you need to remove that code and write better code. I love that so much because in addiction treatment, for example, in the 12 step programs, they talk about working a program, that we're all already working a program. Some of us just know that you can change parts of it. You have some say in changing your program, but it's not like I've got a program and you haven't got one. You've got one anyway, so you might as well have a go, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which we all do. Let's talk about happiness for a second. So the kindness method is about changing your habits to, to sort of find your top potential, the best version of you, if you want. Can the kindness method make us happier? If you think what's standing between you and happiness is the creation or changing of a specific behavior or pattern, then yeah, absolutely. But I think in the first instance, do you think there's anyone who would be less happy as a result of speaking more kindly towards themselves? Do you think it could do harm the other way? No. So then, yeah. (laughs) So then the answer is yes. Like, I think that even little things, right? So it doesn't have to be in in the pursuit of behavioral change. Like, I remember a couple of years ago during lockdown, I was having a really bad day and all the lights in the middle of the night, all the electricity went in my flat. And I remember for some, my brain just went to this like, well, it's because you're single. <laughs> single. Sorry. No, no, not at all. It all got very Bridget Jones. I was like, you know, it's because you're single. And now you have to become an electrician. 
Yes. You know? Yes. Um, and it's dark and it's cold. And like, I just kept telling myself, like really getting all very, what I call Dawson's Creek about the whole thing. And then I thought, hold on. I've been using this like positive self-talk when it talks me into this or that or dealing with discomfort or soothing myself when I feel a rejection of negative feedback, whatever. Let's just use it now. See if it doesn't lift my mood because this is not a vibe. What's going on right now? And I was like, okay, you know what? You are an electrician. You're going to do this. You're going to go get that chair over there and you're going to bring it round. And you're, you don't need to feel sorry for yourself. You live alone because you have the luxury of living alone, which you adore. And I could immediately just feel myself feeling better, you know? And I remember after I did put the switch on, I didn't have to be an electrician. It was, you know, that one big button. <laughs> I just pressed the one big button. <laughs> That's literally it. I, so I was just looking at it. And I remember even as I was like, how am I going to do this? What am I going to need pliers? Or well, it was just literally that one switch that yeah. fucks up or whatever. Anyway, so I remember thinking, do you know what? It just genuinely makes me feel happier to try, just to try. It doesn't always work, mm -hmm. but it's never makes it worse. It never makes it worse, I agree. Never. When I say like hard and fast rules like that, I always think, I wonder what someone could debate that with. But from my experience, it's never made it worse to try. I mean, if, if anyone debates, please find me or uh, or, or find uh, Yeah, uh, I'm Sharu interested and, to know. Yeah, and tell us. I mean, I think self-kindness, I always say that the number one reason for unhappiness is lack of self-love and self-kindness, right? So so if you, if you want to reverse that number one reason for unhappiness, then self-kindness is definitely the path to go. And probably it's because as humans, our bandwidth of getting compliments or criticism in coming from the outside is limited by the communication skills of others. I mean, I could shout at you all day, but I'd probably be able to pack in a thousand bad comments. Our brains have the speed of packing in a thousand bad comments a minute, right? And I think the idea of us trying to literally just say, hey, look at me, I'm fine. I'm doing so well. I'm, I've been there and I'm now here. Mm. And by the way, my intention is to go even there. And that's a wonderful achievement in itself. And by the way, nothing of what I'm being told is even true most of the time. I think the standards that we hold ourselves to are just yeah, inhuman in many, many ways. So yes, I agree. So, so do you have a happiness practice? Like do you, uh, do you do things regularly that make you happier? Not ones Other that you than can living see. Alone. Living alone makes me I, very happy, I, I have to say. I think that's a great idea. Oh, I yeah. love it so much. Yeah. Long live living alone for me. <laughs> Spinning. I sometimes I take myself to a karaoke booth by myself. Do you? I do. Is that uh, like available for us to put on slow-mo? <laughs> <laughs> I hope. I'm not going to tell you where I go because it's really cheap and I don't want everyone going. Okay. Because um, <laughs> uh, it's my place. Uh -huh. That makes me happy. You see, you know, they're, they're giving you an amazing service and now you don't want to promote them because you want to. They make fun of me every time I go. Oh, one microphone again? Like I've got no <laughs> mates. And it's like, I'm doing a very cool personal development thing. No. Hold on. So, so you go take one microphone and sing karaoke by yeah, yourself. It came because I used to get sad on Sunday nights. That's such a Perfect practice. Thank you. I used to get really sad on Saturday nights. On Sunday nights. Saturday nights, I was pretty much okay. <laughs> Sunday nights, I used to call it like the antiques roadshow depression. <laughs> you know, so that's like going back to school tomorrow thing, especially if you were drinking <laughs> over the weekend. I just always, Sundays made me feel very alone, very single, and very at risk of binge eating. Mm. So what I did 
I kept trying to go to the Buddhist center. Again, assuming that someone who is improving themselves in some way yeah. goes and becomes a Buddhist. At, at 5 a.m. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. At dawn mm -hmm. or does yoga. Another thing I don't like, mm -hmm. you know, I just assumed once you're a personal development person, <laughs> you got to love yoga. I don't like it. I don't mm -hmm. like the feet everywhere. I don't want it. <laughs> Do you, I just don't like any of it. Not happening. Anyway, I noticed on a Sunday night, people kept saying, do the mindfulness thing, do the mind. And I broke down the mindfulness thing. And I was like, what is this? What is this mindfulness thing? We're, we're just throwing it around all of a sudden. Now we're saying kindfulness. What is it? It's being present. It's, it's having the capacity to observe things coming in and out, right? And I thought, when was the last time I could do that? And the last time time would pass and I couldn't even work out whether it had been five minutes or an hour. Mm -hmm. And it was when I would sing at school. I wasn't good at it. I just liked singing. Mm. And so I decided to bring that back into my life. So I thought, I'm just going to go to karaoke booth by myself. And I did it the once and it was absolutely amazing. Sometimes I'll have a latte. Sometimes I'll have a cocktail. Depends on the vibe. <laughs> and yeah, that makes me very happy. But more than anything, I have to be honest with you, my personal development is something that makes me enormously proud of myself. And that makes me very happy. It's been very hard for, uh, not very hard. It's been much harder for a lot of people, but I've been on a back foot in terms of liking myself and even doing stuff like this. There would have been a time where this was my Everest. And now I'm able to sit and think some people will agree. Some people won't agree. I've not, not done anything wrong. I'm just trying to help. You know, that kind of like relaxed vibe with myself has made me happier than a karaoke booth. Just about. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Sharo Izhadi. Thank you very much. And I only swore twice. I only swore twice. You only Basically swore a nun. twice, but you said so many nuggets of wisdom and it was so much fun and it was so much from the heart. I love it. I think the idea of kindness, by the way, to ourselves will interestingly come with a bit of rebellion because a big part, a big part of why we're unkind to ourselves, is we're trying to comply with what we've, we've been told that we should do. I think that's such an eye-opening way of looking at it that you do not have to believe what you were told that you have to be. And I think the idea is find out who you are, love that person, And then we can start from there. I, I love, I love, love, love that, that, that we said that. Sharo, I'm very grateful that you came here. I loved our conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you all for joining us today. I hope you had as much fun as I did you. If you, are, if you were in the presence of Sharo, you would actually feel the enormous energy that comes your way. I hope you felt it through the conversation too. Do the things I tell you every time, like rate the podcast five stars and subscribe on YouTube and all of that stuff. And they say, yes, hold on, hold on. When you subscribe on YouTube, click the notification button so that you get informed of it and all of that stuff. I don't want you to do it for yourself. But I honestly believe that this is one of my big pride is the work we've done here on Slow Mo to bring so many interesting perspectives. So when you do those things, you're simply telling others that they may find wisdom here. And I think that's a very good way to spread the message. As always, I hope uh, you will find a bit of time to slow down. I promise you, all of you, that after this very, very long stretch of running really fast ends hopefully soon after we publish the Dutch version in a couple of weeks time, I will go on a 45 days retreat where none of you will hear from me. There will be slow-mo episodes happening because we're buffering them, but I will be somewhere 
absolutely unknown having coffee and writing my next book and uh, you may want to do a bit of that for yourself too through your kindness to yourself find a little bit of time to take care of you a little bit of time to slow down i love you all for listening and i will see you next time